Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us here um, this morning. And welcome to those online as well to our service here at Fort Hill Community Church. My name is uh, Pastor Aaron. I'm the pastor here at Fort Hill Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, you can do that. It's great to be back here with you. My family has had a a pretty big change. We had a baby last week, so um, it's been awesome. And uh, my wife is is home with um, little Bryn right now. So, hey, Hannah, how you doing? Hope you're doing well. Enjoying your time. Um, but we're back here. We're going to work through. I couldn't miss this Sunday. This is Palm Sunday, as you can see right back here. This is the Sunday that we celebrate Jesus entering into Jerusalem, what is known as his triumphant entry or triumphal entry, the Sunday before um, Easter. And a, and a Sunday riddled with paradox, uh, entering in as a hero and as a king, and then crucified as a criminal. Uh, just a few days later. Today's message is going to be a little bit different than maybe what you're used to if you've attended a Palm Sunday service before. We're not going to spend so much time on what actually happens, although we are going to read that and kind of hit on that really quickly. But instead, we're going to talk about um, Jesus's emotional response to what happens, okay? Uh, We're going to read it all, But we're going to see how Jesus processes what he experiences, because the difference is striking. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation uh, whenever what you were feeling inwardly is the exact opposite of what was happening outwardly, okay? Uh, For example, uh, my grandmother, called her Memo, whenever she uh, passed away, I was in college, it was probably uh, sophomore year or junior year in college. And I was very, very close to my grandmother. Uh, we built a house on my, grand, on my grandmother and grandfather on their property. Um, I was at her house all the time. Whenever we were little, we got off the, the bus at her house. Uh, Papa always had ice cream for us and chips and soda and all the worst stuff in the world. So we were all hopped up uh, by the time my parents got home to take us back home. So thanks a lot, Mama and Papa, for that. Um, and so Memo passed away, and it was a very sad thing, right? Losing your grandparent is a very sad thing. And so we were at the uh, funeral in the wake for my, for my Memo, and I wasn't sad. I wasn't sad at all. I didn't cry. Uh, I didn't mourn. I didn't feel bad. I mean, I, I felt bad that my grandmother was gone, but I, I didn't feel any really negative emotion. I felt good. I felt really good for my grandmother because she wasn't in a nursing home bed anymore. I remember going and visiting her the first time she was put in the nursing home, and she was trying to get out of the bed to go with us to go back home. And my dad was saying, no, Mom, you have to stay here. You have to stay here. You can't come with us. And just how heartbreaking that that was at the time. But now, inwardly, I was shouting for joy for my grandmother because she wasn't in a hospital bed anymore, in a nursing home bed. She was in heaven with Jesus, right, with my grandfather. And so the inside didn't match the outside. I was very joyous. I remember sort of being on the tips of my toes, just so excited for her. Today we're going to see sort of the same idea, but reversed. 
when all is joyous around Jesus, we are going to see him overcome with grief. And it is from this grief that we're going to learn about what moves the heart of Christ. So if you want to start with me in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, we're going to go to verse 44 and work through particularly verses 41 to 44. Okay, so let's read this. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going out to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Beth, uh, Beth, Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying this colt? Why are you stealing my, my donkey? And they said, The Lord has need of it. I guess that was enough. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And this is our section. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a strange response, right? This Palm Sunday, the traditional name given to this day, is celebrating this arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's uh, setting a stage for us, a very ironic stage for what we're going to celebrate next Sunday on Easter Sunday. Because what we see is a celebration, right? We see loud rejoicing. We see the Jews here in Jerusalem receiving Jesus as a king, as a king coming into his kingdom. If you remember, whenever Jesus starts his public ministry, he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. And now we see Jesus at the very end of his life entering into Jerusalem, the sort of the apex of uh, the Jews and their worship of God and 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 their relationship with God is found there right in the temple, and the king is coming in to his kingdom there, and they're shouting for him because they see in Jesus the promises of King David from so many years before, whenever Israel had all this victory over their enemies at a time whenever they personally were ruled by the Romans and beaten and bloodied and bruised by the Romans. Now Jesus is coming to bring us victory. We're going to win. Here's our king. They call him king. Blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're waving palm branches at him, not because he was hot and they were trying to make him feel a little cooler in the hot sun, 
because palm branches were a symbol of national pride, national zeal, of national victory. And the final symbol is the donkey, which whenever you think donkey, you probably don't think king. But in the Old Testament, that was the prophecy. Humble is your king and mounted on a donkey you will find him. So the Jews were looking for the donkey, and there the donkey was, Jesus on top, a, a beast of burden, the king coming, bringing not war of a stallion, but the peace of a donkey. Here is our king. Consider the fanfare. Consider the jubilation. Think about, you know, the closest thing we probably have are presidential motorcades, or presidential inaugurations, right? When everyone gathers onto Washington, D.C., um, it was estimated that uh, at Barack Obama's first inauguration, 1.8 million people showed up in D.C. to, um, you know, to be there. And, you know, not, not getting political or anything, but these are people that were looking at one man for hope for their future, okay? And in a similar way, these people are here looking at Jesus for hope for their future, Victory against their enemies, calling him the king that comes in the name of the Lord. So given this scene, it is with striking irony, amidst this backdrop of excited jubilation, internally, Jesus is much different. It says, whenever he drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it. He wept, he cried. Now, it's very rare to see Jesus weeping. This is only the second time in the Gospels that we see Jesus weeping. The other time we see Jesus weeping, he's weeping because his friend Lazarus died. That's a good reason to cry, right? Your very close friend dies. You see the destruction of sin in this earth. You cry. But why does Jesus cry here? Why is he weeping here? Ought he to be excited? I mean, think about it. He started his earthly ministry three years ago. He's going out throughout all the land, Judea and Galilee, preaching the message of the kingdom of God, calling people to repent and believe. He even had a setup man and John the Baptist to come and work the crowd first, right? It's exactly what he had. And now it seems to have worked, right? Everyone's here shouting my name, calling me king. They're connecting the promises of David to me. I'm on the donkey, don't they know, Right? Shouldn't he be excited? Didn't it work? And yet, he's weeping. Yet, he's crying. Today, we're going to spend our time not on the triumph of Palm Sunday, but on the lament of Palm Sunday. Not on the rejoicing over Jesus, but on the weeping of Jesus. And the question we're really going to focus on today, and it's going to drive our discussion, is this. What makes Jesus weep? What makes Jesus cry? For something that happens so seldom in the Gospels, it's something that we should really pay attention to. It's something that we should really clue in on. What stirs him emotionally that he's moved to tears? And what does that teach us about his heart? And then from there, I'm going to turn it back upon ourselves. I'm going to ask ourselves, do we weep as Jesus weeps? Do we cry for what Jesus cries for? And so the first thing, really just two points they are going to work through today. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus weeps for unbelief. Jesus weeps for unbelief. 
verses 41-42. That's what it says. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now there's a lot here, a lot more than meets the eye, and we're not, particularly in that word hidden from your eyes, that's a whole other message that I, I don't want to get into today. I just want to focus on this overarching emotion of Jesus, of intense grief for the kingdom of Israel. So let me just give a little nuance and a little depth here. And this is stuff you might already know, but just to make the point, okay? Israel is God's chosen people, all right? God's chosen people. That of all the people in the world, God is, you know, everyone is God's chosen people in the sense that God created all people and he loves all people, right? But the Israelites, the Jews, these, these are his people that he chose out of every single nation, of one particular people that would evidence who God is to the world by him having a relationship with them. If you want to know what God is like in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament time, then look at Israel, and this is what God is like. If you want to know about this holy God, okay, this is what it says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. You are a people... Holy to the Lord your God. That word holy is an important word. It means to be set apart. You are a set apart people from all the other people in the world. You are different. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. Israel, special. Okay? And not only that, not only are they chosen, but God made all these promises to Israel that if they followed his word... If they were careful to do all of his commandments, not stray to the left or to the right, then he would bless them. Continuing on, Deuteronomy 7, verse 11, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rule that I command you. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, moving to verse 13, I, says he, but talking about God, will love you, will bless you, will multiply you. And it has, you can read the rest of it, all the ways God's going to love them, bless them, and multiply them. So if you're an Israelite, it's a pretty sweet deal, right? God is on your side. If you've read Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is just such an awesome um, book because it's really the apex of the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch. you got all these sort of promises uh, in the first half of Deuteronomy. Then you got a lot of laws and, and stuff like that in the middle. And then in the very end, you get Moses' last words to Israel. And he gives these blessings and these cursings. And he says, if you will follow the Lord your God, this is what you get. If you don't follow the Lord your God, these are the curses you get. There's a lot more curses than blessings because that's what happens if you know the, if you read the Old Testament, okay? But this is it. I mean, God is on their side favorite son status, and then not only that, throughout the Old Testament, we read echoes of promises that God is going to send to them a Savior, a Messiah that's going to come and bring in an everlasting kingdom. If you know the, the prophecy to David, God says to David that he will have a king on his throne, and in his kingdom there will be no end, an everlasting kingdom, and we know that that, that king is Jesus, right? Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, the government will be on his shoulders. He's Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, you just go on and on and on. All these amazing promises. 
And then, whenever that Savior finally comes, whenever that Messiah finally comes, after all these years, hundreds and hundreds of years, they're just aching for the salvation of God, and Jesus finally comes and knocks on their door, and they answer the door, and they say, who are you? Right? What do you want? What are you here for? They don't recognize him. All the promises of God, if you read in 2 Corinthians, it says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And Jesus, it's just incredible. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You can look God straight in the face and talk to them. And then whenever Pilate asked Jesus at the end of John, what is truth? And he's looking truth right square in the eyeballs, and he doesn't see it. The same thing with the Jews here. They don't recognize him. And it's worse than that. Not only do they not recognize him, they don't like him. And not only do they not like him, they hate him. And not only do they hate him, they kill him. Okay? So whenever we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem and weeping over his people, right? That's the depth of this. Something that God has been planning and doing from the beginning of time, from the garden, whenever he said he was going to destroy the serpent and sin and destruction in this world, it's finally happened. He came to his own, it says in John chapter 1, verses 11. And his own people did not receive him. That these shouts of Hosanna will tomorrow be shouts of crucify him. This is their unbelief. John chapter 12, we're working through the book of John. This is what it says as Jesus ends his public ministry, then transitions to his private ministry to his disciples. John 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then again, John chapter 111, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He's weeping because they did not know the time of their visitation. Waiting to get that knock on the door for years and years and years and years and years, and then whenever it finally happens, they miss it. All the promises of God's word standing there before them, and they miss it. And they missed it because Jesus was not the Messiah that they had expected. Jesus was not the Savior even that they wanted. He preached a message not of self-righteousness, not saying, man, you guys are incredible. I'm just blown away by how amazing you guys are. He preached a message of repentance. He preached a message of salvation from sin, not salvation from the Romans. He preached a message of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel. He preached a message of self-sacrifice, a message of grace and mercy, and called out their hypocrisy and called out their self-righteousness. And they didn't like that message. They didn't believe that message. And that made Jesus weep. Now, what do you weep for? What makes you weep? What stirs your emotions? What breaks your heart? The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 9. Verses 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed 
and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, Paul being a Jew, an Israelite, praying that if it could be so, that he would lose Jesus for the sake of his brothers and sisters gaining Jesus. How crazy is that? Continuing on, next chapter, Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I think, as I consider Palm Sunday, you know, I've read this text a lot. I never connected the entering to the, 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 grief, the grief, right, the weeping, the triumph to the lament, that the response of Jesus is so totally opposite to what everyone else is, is doing, that his heart is broken for the lost. And then the question to me, is that, is that me? Is that me? I think as followers of Christ, we can look at this world, we can see where things are headed, we can see the state of things in this world, and we can say, man, things don't look good. And what can come out of that is a stiff heart of judgment. And that word judgment, to a lot of people, is a dirty word. Let me say that's not a dirty word because God does judge. He's given us his judgment. He's given us his word. And Jesus himself offers very harsh judgment to the very people that will yell crucify him. He calls them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. You're dead on the inside. Okay? But the judgment from Jesus leads not to pride or self-righteousness, not that he could do that, but it leads him to grief. It leads him to weeping. At the very end, whenever we see Jesus look upon these masses, he cries over the judgment that is coming for them. We're going to see what that judgment is later on, but he cries for their unbelief, not a high and mighty judgment, but a lowly grief. And so, again, is this you? Are you mindful of the spiritual condition of those around you? Your time on earth is 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, you know, hopefully more, but who knows? But we weren't created for a handful of years. We were created for eternity. Do you long for the salvation of those in your neighborhoods, in your communities? Do you know your neighbors? Do you know what they believe? Have you had that conversation? Now, I'm not telling you to go home and knock on their door and say, hey, do you love Jesus, right? You could try that. People have done that. Jehovah's Witnesses do it all the time. They're really good at it. I don't know if you guys have had, I've had visitations once. I had great conversation, right? But is this something that operates in your head? Do you think about these things? In your workplaces, in your family, do you think, I want people to be saved? Is this something you pray for through tears like Jesus? Is this something you pursue in witnessing? Because here's the truth. You cry for what you care for. You cry for what you care for. We just had a baby. A week and a half. Two weeks. Come on, two weeks, okay? And whenever it was go time, at around 1.30 um, that Wednesday in the afternoon, the doctor comes in, and he's like, all right, let's have this baby. And he's just like, you know, ready to go, right? You know what my wife did? She started crying, right? She started crying. Why'd she cry? This is her baby. 
right? That she'd cared for, that she'd nurtured. She was put in the hospital like four weeks before, you know, and just all these things that go with that. She cared for this baby, and now we're meeting Bren, and she's starting to cry. Have you ever cried for the lost? Have you ever, not do you, but have you even once? Because I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't think we do. And it's not that we don't care. I don't want you, I don't, I say I don't want to challenge you or burden you. I kind of do want to challenge you and burden you, actually. It's not that we don't care. We just don't care like Jesus cares. It's not that we're not moved. We're just not moved like Jesus is moved. I remember whenever I was starting out, we were starting out uh, with the church, church planning, and I was listening to a lot of podcasts um, and reading a lot of stuff, because you're starting out, and I mean, starting to plan a church, I mean, that's just glutton for punishment, right? And, you know, I'm, I remember, this is how silly it is, I remember um, I had to get a new laptop, and I got a new laptop, a, a MacBook, and I was just so desperate for any sort of traction with the church that I was like, okay, once I get this new laptop, then I'll really be able to do things like set up a computer, uh, sorry, set up a, the website, and, you know, just stupid stuff. And then the laptop came in, and I actually felt worse because I was like, I was, I was like looking at the laptop thinking, okay, make the church happen, you know? Make the church happen. And I was like, no. That's, that's silliness, right? I was looking to other things. I'm just looking for anything, God, to get traction going here. And so I'm, I'm listening to this podcast, and I'm listening to this guy, and these were two church planners in Canada. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, spiritually cold, literally cold here. Canada, just, you know, bump it up a few more degrees, right? And so that's, that's these guys, and they're talking about what they're trying to do in ministry. And then one of the guys just starts crying, weeping over his community, over the, the people uh, that he's trying to reach. And I remember thinking to myself, like, where is that in me? Where is that in me? Where is this burden you know, for the lost in me? And, and I, I give that to you. Where is that in you? Where is that in you? The truth is, it's not in us, in the sense that it doesn't come from us. We don't drum up emotion. That's just acting. And we don't need actors in the church. We don't need actors in the kingdom of God. The burden from the lost comes from the very heart of God himself. And it's just so, everything that I've seen, it's like just doing the church and just walking with Jesus. It's like, I need to go and run after these things. But then I'm like, no, I need to go and run after God, and then as I'm running after God and abiding in Jesus, he's going to send me to do these things. And I get it mixed up, because where does the, the power come from? It comes from God. Where does the, the heart come from? It comes from God. It comes from his word. It comes from Christ. And so this burden from the lost we see from the very heart of Jesus weeping and it's that heart that I want to look at now. Jesus weeps for unbelief, but he weeps from a compassionate heart. So we're going to just quickly read from Matthew 23, verse 37. This is kind of like a companion text. It's not the same 
situation. In Matthew, it's after he's entered, a few days after he's entered into Jerusalem. But this is what Jesus says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And that's all throughout the Old Testament. God is sending them uh, a prophet to say, repent and believe, repent and believe, you know, turn uh, to the Lord your God, turn away from idols and stone that guy and kill that guy and get rid of those guys because we're not going to listen. So he's lamenting that. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? And you were not willing. Jesus here is borrowing a metaphor from the book of Psalms, and we see this really throughout the Old Testament. But just reading from Psalm uh, chapter 91, starting in verse 1 and 2, and then coming to verse 4, this is what, um, this is what it says there. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So the, the idea is that our place of uh, security and provision is in nearness to God. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. God's our refuge and fortress. He's our protector. Verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. You will find refuge. Just like a mother hen broods and, and, and brings in um, his children underneath his wing to protect them, God is positioning himself as, his, as the protector of his people. One thing I learned real quick as a little kid is that you do not mess with a mother hen's chicks, okay? I'm going to tell you a little story. It's a little silly, but it applies. My grandfather, the same man mom and papa I chatted about before, he had a, a farm, a barn, and he had chickens. And whenever I was little, I was probably Ellie's age or Levi's age, somewhere around there, two, uh, probably three or four. My brother, who's older, said, go grab a chick. The chicken, the mama hen was running. The chicks were all behind her in a row. And I went and grabbed one. I was like, I got the chick. And then I turn around, and mama hen jumps on my face and starts pecking my face, okay? It's a true story. And I start crying, obviously, traumatized. And I run to my mama hen, my mom, and I jump in her lap, and my grandfather laughs at me, and he calls me chicken man the rest of his life. <laughs> that actually happened until I was about 17. I was chicken man. He didn't even call me Aaron. He called me chicken man, okay? Um, because you don't mess with the mama hen's chicks. You don't mess with the mama hen's chicks, or you get the beak, right? You get the claws, you get all of that. And so this is how God is for his people. He brings them in. He protects them, right? He drove out the Nate whenever Israel um, you know, comes across the Jordan. They take out Jericho. They go and they, you know, they take over the land. And, and God says, I'm going to fight for you. You're not going to lose anyone. I'm just going to drive these people out, right? And that's exactly what he does. That is the compassionate heart of Jesus for his people to protect them, to provide for them. And then we get to the end of this passage here in Matthew and it says, and you were not willing. You were not willing. 
I was there for you to be your refuge and your strength, and you didn't want to be under my wing. And that led to Israel's destruction. And that led to Israel's destruction. Going back to our text in Luke 19, verse 43, it says this. I'll start before verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus here is prophesying the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans. That happens. Jesus is speaking around 30, 33 A.D. In the year 70 A.D., the Romans come. This happened in history. The Romans come and sack the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed their temple, just as Jesus said. If you read um, further on in Matthew and Luke, you see a little bit more specific prophecy from Jesus on the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and in the temple there. And to this day, no temple has been built in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jews do not have their temple rebuilt because they did not want to stay under the wing of their God. They did not know the time of their visitation. The door, they heard the knock at the door, and they said, Who are you? They did not know on that day the things that make for peace. They were a rebellious people. And yet, and yet, knowing all of this, going back to Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills my prophets, that kills the people that I sent to it. If you had just come to me and come under my wing, I would have protected you. And yet, we see the compassion of God for a rebellious people. That is how he works. The grief of Jesus over a rebellious people. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises of some count slowness. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's not negligent, but he's patient. Talk about the patience of God with his people. If you read the Old Testament, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. One of the sweetest truths of God's word is that he is patient and compassionate towards sinners that we may fail again and again and again and again and again. But the Lord is not so quick as to write us off without extending his compassion even more. He extends that compassion, that extra again to us. I often read the Old Testament. Me and my wife are doing it right now. And just so totally struck by Israel, right? A stiff-necked people putting the Lord their God to the test. They'd rather be slaves in Egypt eating melons than brought out to the promised land, okay? They'd rather be in shackles rather than free to walk through that desert with the Lord leading them. And I think, what is wrong with these people, right? Don't they know how good they have it? Look at my kids, right? Parents, you know. What is wrong with you? Don't you know how good you have it? right? Don't you know that you don't have to do anything? You just watch TV and run around, and, and I do everything for you. Not We don't do everything for our kids, but you get what I'm saying. Don't you know how good you have it? I think about myself. 
What's wrong with you? Right? Don't you know? Don't I know how good I have it? Because the truth is, I can be just like that. I think the Old Testament is so important because it's not just the people of Israel. It's the heart of man. It's the heart of women. It's the heart of humanity. It is our default. Like it says in like it says in the hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. That's just how it is. We're trying to wriggle underneath the wing of the Lord, and yet his compassionate heart gives us grace again and again and again and again. What does it say in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. God's heart flows with compassion for sinners. Amen. And he blesses them not with cars, not with houses, not with worldly success. He blesses them with forgiveness of transgression and counts against them no iniquity. As far as the east is from the west, so far, so far have I separated you from your sin. And I think about how precious is that to me? How precious is that to you? Because that's why Jesus cries because he sees Israel and how, how good they have and how much God wants to bless them and give them what they actually need. I think about whenever Jesus was dedicated to the temple in Luke. I think the guy's name was Simon. And he looks at Jesus as a babe and he says, Thank you, Lord, for now my eyes have seen the salvation for Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have brought to this world. How precious these truths that flow from the compassionate heart of God that we have blessing, so much blessing in his son. For you, for you, this Palm Sunday, do you know the heart of Jesus for you? For you. I know we're talking about your heart for others, but let's just start there. Do you know the heart of Jesus for you? That just as he was weeping over Israel's unbelief, he weeps over our unbelief, and he came not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people, that every sin was done away on the cross. Do you know that same heart for you? That just like Israel, squirming away from his wing, and yet he still calls you, he still has compassion for you, he is still near you in your unbelief, and grieves that you might know the day of peace that he has brought. But the good news is that you can know this peace. I just love Palm Sunday because it sets us up for Easter. That amidst the false joy and shout of the crowd, that there will be a true joy and shout of the crowd in just a few days. And it will be a much smaller crowd in Mary and the rest of the disciples that see the empty tomb, but it's just as sweet, more sweet, and more true because it's real. That Jesus has risen from the dead, that the compassion of God was more than the sin of man, and that the grace and mercy of God flows from the cross and the tomb. You can know that compassion. You can know that mercy. You can know that grace 
if you repent and believe, just as Jesus, if you turn from your unbelief and place your faith in him, you can have that. And for those who have done that and yet are struggling with this sin or that sin or wherever you're at in your life, that same message is still true for you, to turn from your unbelief. Because God wants to use you. And he doesn't want to use you for your kingdom and your glory. He wants to use you for his kingdom and his glory. That many would be saved through your faithful obedience. And so for us as a church, we are on two sides. We're a, we're a, as followers of Jesus, we are shouting for joy in the final victory and yet mourning in the present losses that we see. We know the end. The kingdom of God will come in full and final authority and power, and yet we grieve over the unbelief we see. Let's carry both of these as best we can, following the example of Jesus, lamenting the lost and yet triumphing as the lost are found. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, just the the dichotomy, Lord, of, of this Palm Sunday, which is just all over the map, up and down, um, seeing things. Jesus saw things that uh, the world did not see. Lord, he, he, he saw the big picture. He felt the big picture. Not only seeing it, he felt it. He experienced it. Um, and I just can't imagine, you know, hearing all of this and, and seeing all of this Hosanna, 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 the Palmers, all of that. And then knowing just a few days, he's going to be bleeding out on a cross. You know, just, just talk about such a shift. Talk about such a change. And yet he comes in on that donkey because peace was coming. In the most unlikely of places, peace was coming. And it was coming on the cross. What does he say? What does your son say? It is finished. And it was finished. It was done. Lord, and so we, 2,000 years removed from that, we say that it is finished. And for us, it is finished. For those who know you, the sin is done. It's gone. Blessed we are whose transgression is forgiven, Lord. But for a lot of people, it's not finished because they don't know that. They don't believe that. They're shouting Hosanna and then they're shouting crucify him. They're just like Israel trying to come away from you, Lord, and, and you're calling them to come under your wing. And Jesus is weeping over these people. And Lord, we're, we're looking at our hearts. We're saying, where is that in me? Where is that in me? And so I want to pray that that same view that Jesus has for the masses would, would worm its way into our hearts through your spirit and help us and burden us and break us and then empower us to go and to speak as we are called to go and to speak that we see in the book of Acts through the power of your spirit to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Because we got a lot of those people. I, Lord, whenever I sometimes just walk into like Walmart or Hannaford, Lord, just thinking like basically this whole store doesn't know you on average. Basically like everybody in here. Lord, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? And I don't, I don't think it starts with a clever evangelism strategy. I, I think it starts with us asking ourselves internally, 
what makes us weep. Dealing with it first here. We need you to do that, Lord. We gotta we gotta lean in and we, we got to abide and apart from you we can do nothing. So I lift up this church, I lift up these people, I lift up folks joining us online. I lift up this town, I lift up this community, I lift up all of this, Lord, because we want to see people know you. We want to see people saved, Lord. We want to see people shouting Hosanna in truth. We want you to do that through us. So I just pray that you would accept this offering as we worship and respond, that you would use this word as the seed is sown on good soil, that you'd produce fruit from it, that you would have your way, Lord, and we look forward expectant to Easter coming up as well. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.